Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There is an awful lot going on right now with the U.S. and China and Taiwan. We have heard about China staging military drills around the island with huge buildup of apparatus. Um, Well, some say drills, some are concerned it's not for that. Nancy Pelosi has landed there despite warnings from China against it. Some are saying things are heading towards a war. President Biden in the past has said that they're going to defend the island, defend Taiwan. Is this all just rumblings and bluster, or is there more here that we should be concerned about? Charles Burton is a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, who joins us now. Uh, Charles, thank you for this. Very much appreciated today. Good to speak with you, Scott. Maybe, now I've been on vacation and I know that, as I said a moment ago, that I've been tuned out a little bit, but boy, even when I came back, this seems like it has gone from 10 kilometers an hour to 120 miles an hour in just a few seconds. Well, I think you're right. Uh, You know, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is a sort of signal moment in the relations between uh, China and the United States, and probably one that you know, the U.S. president, the Pentagon, uh, the government of China and the government of Taiwan didn't want. But really, it's indicative of mounting forces of confrontation that, uh, as you say, could eventually break out into a war. The main substantive threat that China has made to the status quo over U.S. and Taiwan is the indication that they will be engaging in live fire exercises around Taiwan, some of it impinging on Taiwan's uh, territorial waters, uh, starting on Thursday and going through till Sunday. Um, You know, if this is indicative that China plans to go for a blockade of Taiwan, then that would really bring the matter to a head. I mean, aside from anything else, Taiwan produces 80% of the world's computer chips. So it's, you know, it's it's something that would have global resonance. And the question really is, will the United States defend Taiwan's democracy and, you know, the sovereignty of the Taiwanese people who don't want to be ruled by the Chinese Communist Party out of Beijing? Or will we um, give in to to China and let them have their way with Taiwan and try and come up with some means to to move forward in a way where China respects the international rules-based order. Well, it seems to me that the first one is more likely than the second one. Well, I wondered about that, and the reason I wondered, I mean, the president has said that they would, and yet they also, the president also said, well, we'll help defend Ukraine, and they didn't want to cause Russia to get cranky, any more cranky, and start getting mad at the U.S. with bombs or whatever else. So, is that not the exact same situation they would face if they got involved with a war with China? Yeah, I think that China's looking at the half-hearted assistance that the West is providing to Ukraine and seeing that the Russians are, in fact, you know, eventually it looks like going to obtain their their uh, military objective in Ukraine. They're just gradually, you know, taking it piece by piece by piece. And um, and they think that this could be the same situation with Taiwan, that we talk a good line, but when it comes down to something that actually would impact on our interests, in the case of Ukraine, you know, how much energy Germany will have to heat their homes next winter, and in the case of Taiwan, what happens to computer chips if Taiwan is blockaded, and feel, okay, maybe this is a good time to, to go into Taiwan because... Um, 
the West talks a good line, but but uh, when it comes to a crunch, they won't mm. uh, they won't defend in ways that would affect important economic interests. Uh, there is a part of me, the belligerent part, that says I like that Nancy Pelosi and the states went over there and sort of put their flag in the sand, as it were, and say we're here and you're not going to cow us and we're not going to be scared of you. On the other hand, I wonder if this was the time to do this because of the military exercises. Is this an antagonistic mo move at this moment that maybe could have been a little less antagonistic at a different moment? Which one is it? Well, I mean, it could be related to domestic uh, U.S. politics and, you know, wanting to support the uh, the Democratic Party in the next uh, congressional election when it looks like the Republicans may, may take the House. But, you know, what she said on arrival is that the delegation's visit honors America's commitment to supporting Taiwan's vibrant democracy, shared interests, including advancing a free and open Indo-Pacific region. So, you know, the key... She has a, a good principled stance for making this gesture towards uh, Taiwan. There's no question about it. And maybe, you know, all the elements are saying, oh, don't do anything. You know, it could make the Chinese mad and they'll they'll do something bad. Maybe a, a kind of appeasement that will come back to haunt us. In other words, if we don't stand up to China now, will we be able to stand up to them later? So I'm mm. with you. I am, um, you know, I have very mixed feelings about it. I I thought that it was a reckless move because of the possibility that, you know, when she was flying into Taiwan, that the Chinese might send up jets to challenge the U.S. military planes that would be accompanying her, and there could be a, a terrible accident that could lead to a, to an actual, real war. And you know, and the Chinese have not agreed to the American proposal to come up with a mechanism to set ground rules and communication channels open just. In, in 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 case of that sort of tragedy occurring. So, you know, I, it is reckless, it is dangerous, but now that it's been done, maybe it is sending out a signal that the West should be sending to China. Well, and now that it has been done, uh, I, I don't get the sense that China sits back and allows these things to happen that embarrass it without some sort of response. China will respond in some way, will it not? Oh, yeah, and I mean, there again, it's about domestic Chinese politics that Xi Jinping you know, who is already skating on thin ice with the economic decline in China and the extreme lockdown policies and their, you know, reluctance to import effective uh, COVID vaccines like the mRNA vaccines that China for some reason has not been able to produce itself. And, um, you know, his increasing crackdown on society and his desire to, to essentially crown himself emperor at the next party Congress that if he is seen as, as being weak towards the United States, and if he's seen as being uh, compromising on the Taiwan issue, that that could tip the domestic balance against him, because people in China have a very strong emotional nationalistic response to the Taiwan issue, and really want Taiwan to be, as they put it, returned to the embrace of the motherland, and don't seem to have much sympathy for the fact that Taiwan is a vibrant democracy and a thriving economy that if China modeled itself on Taiwan, a lot of good things could happen to them domestically and in terms of global peace and prosperity, you know. So it is, it, he, he will respond. The question is, how meaningful a response does he dare make? 
Yeah, it's, uh, boy, it's, I mean, as we said off the top, it just, it seems like it was sort of simmering and all of a sudden now it's on the front burner and it is boiling a little bit and we're going to hope that, uh, as you say, that the response is nothing too significant because, you know, this does not need to be accelerated any further. Um, Charles Burton with the uh, McDonnell Laurie Institute, senior fellow there. Always appreciate the time. Thank you so much for this. Good to speak with you. Don't take any more vacations. You can't tell what will happen next. <laughs> That's right. Maybe it's my fault. Go away and the world goes like this. Uh, Charles Burton, thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye. It is, uh, look, if you don't know much about the story or if you've sort of not been following it, you should probably give it a read because this is, as, as Charles Burton just said, guaranteed China has been watching what the West has been doing in Ukraine where a big game has been talked, where it was, oh, we're going to come to Ukraine's aid, and then what did we do? Not really much. We sent some weapons, but that's about it. We didn't send troops. We didn't get in because we didn't want to antagonize Russia and create a bigger conflict. Well, is there any reason that you can think of that you would believe that we would be not wanting to antagonize Russia, but we'd be happy to antagonize China? That, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So it, it seems if you're China, if you're the leadership of China, you're looking at what's happened in the Ukraine and you're saying, why would, if this, this is our moment, why would we not try and make our move on Taiwan or do something? Because clearly the world is not that in, interested in getting involved. They'll say they are, but really when it comes down to it, are they really going to? It makes the whole thing very, very scary. All these pieces one after the other after the other that are that are happening it's 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 concerning you're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML there was a great series in the spectator a few weeks ago by John Wells called Hitman where he talked to Ken Murdoch who was a hitman within the mafia around here and just the other day there's a piece in the national post interviews with a serial killer do you see me as a demon which was a uh, discussion or notes from a discussion with Dellen Millard, who of course was very well, is very well known around here, particularly for his involvement in the Tim Bosma slaying, which everybody around here is familiar with. The author of that, the reporter who put that together, uh, joins us now. Adrian Humphreys is his name. Uh, he is also the guy behind a story. This is for a story in the True Crime podcast. True Crime Byline is the name of that podcast. Adrian joins me now. Adrian, how are you today? I'm quite well, Scott. Yourself? I, listen, I'm great. I, I really appreciate you taking some time because this is, um, as I say, around here, uh, this is still a big story. People know the name Tim Bosma. Dellen Millard, maybe you have to sometimes for some people say Tim Bosma, but they immediately put the pieces together. But these discussions that this came from, these were from a number of years ago, correct? You've had these sort of on hold for a little while. Yeah, uh, I started speaking with him during um, the trial, his second first degree murder trial for the murder of Laura Babcock. And I started spending some Saturdays in uh, a Toronto jail, locked in a room with him. Um, and so that would have been uh, 2017 um, when I started. And now so some, some of it was held on embargo, as they call it. Um, he, he, he was in the middle of a trial. Um, there was a jury at that trial. He still had a third first-degree murder trial to go. And uh, it, um, you know, for very sensible reasons, he, he wanted some of the material um, embargoed until after all his 
trials were over. Okay, and that's what I was going to ask, why now? But that makes a ton of sense. Um, well, I am... there is one element to the why now as well, is that uh, I'd kind of forgotten about it, to be absolutely honest with you. <laughs> you know, I, I did the stories at the time tied to his trial, um, and then, uh, and then um, working with um, the True Crime Byline podcast, um, I revisited uh, my, 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 all my notes and my, my transcripts of my interviews with him, and I realized that I never really got very deep into the material because of, because of that time embargo. And, uh, and so that was the opportunity for now to, to, to revisit that. I'm always curious when, and, and you know, we see this on Dateline NBC or 48 Hours or 2020 or whatever. We see this all the time in the States, but I'm always curious when a convicted killer wants to talk with a reporter because I never am sure what the upside is for them. What was his reason? Why did he want to talk to you? Um, he wanted, he, he maintains his innocence, uh, to put it uh, succinctly. And he felt that he could convince me, uh, and, the, and well, actually he could convince the public through me of his alleged innocence. Uh, and uh, I think he, he, you know, he's used to getting what he wants. He's a convincing guy. He talked people into doing all kinds of crazy stuff for him. Um, so, you know, I, I think he had this... Uh, um, delusional narcissism that uh, that meant that uh, he could uh, he could trick me or manipulate me into writing something that would get the public on side with him because he felt he'd been demonized in the press uh, over these uh, three killings. But Adrian, at this point, does public opinion really matter for anything? Like I, again, I'm I'm trying to understand what he would think that if the public goes on his side. Does he think that leads to a new trial or new trials or just that he's not seen so badly? He said to me that um, that would be the start of everything turning around. Um, he, he seemed to think that, uh, that if the public stopped demonizing him uh, and, and started seeing it from his perspective of sort of demonizing the Crown prosecutors or demonizing the police investigators that he said were out to get him, that perhaps it would stick in the mind of sort of the appeal court when he was appealing his conviction or the, the next jury for the next pro- trial uh, or, or a subsequent, um, you know, he had three appeals still to go and so forth. So he, he really believed that this would be the beginning of, uh, you know, his, his being revealed as a wrongfully accused. Mm. And I use those words in quotes, of course. You mentioned that um, he has been able over time to get people to do stuff for him. So he he must have, this is probably the wrong word, but I'll use it anyway for lack of a better one. He must have a charm or something that convinces people. So when you're talking with him, was there ever a point at which you're catching yourself saying, I don't know, I'm kind of listening to him and thinking maybe he's got a point here. And then you have to sort of talk yourself back with the stuff you know. Um, well, let me let me tackle that two ways. I mean, the, the, the second part of did I ever sort of lose myself in the moment with him? No. Uh, I knew exactly who I was dealing with and what his what his agenda was. And and to be fair, he, he, he kind of got what my agenda was, too. And that was to get some some news stories, uh, some headlines and some clicks, as he would often put it. Um, but um, but 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 to, to the core of your question is, I mean, he is um, a convincing guy in a certain way um and i know this is kind of a loaded thing but very sort of trumpian or that populist politician mantra like he he's he, you know he, he he repeated his key message over and over again he would speak with this 
clear cadence. Like I remember one time in particular when he goes, I know that this happened and I know this because I was there and I know this and I, I know, you know, that this, this, this repetition and this emphasis, he's, he's also pretty well spoken. Um, and, um, but I think a lot of the um, convincing that he was able to do was before, you know, he'd been charged with murder. Um, back then he was, he was wealthy. He came from a, uh, a family of some right. note. Uh, he he himself had a brush with some fame when he was 14 uh, and became the youngest person ever in the world to solo pilot both a helicopter and a plane. Um, so, you know, there's uh, his wealth and his education mixed with the fact that he tended to hang around with people that were perhaps less educated and perhaps uh, you know, and very much less on the socioeconomic uh, stages, he um, led him to be seen as, or not so younger than him. Most of his friends much younger than him. Led to him being seen as sort of the boss, the leader, or the. Because I, I you know, look, uh, you you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. We say that a million times, but every time I look at his mugshot. I think this is not a very bright guy. The picture just doesn't make him look very bright. I, I, it sounds like that's a completely wrong interpretation of who he is. I mean, he's not a genius. Um, that's for sure. <laughs> no, but but I, I've you know I've spoken to a lot of criminals, and I would sort of put him in the I don't know the the, the top twenty percent of of violent offenders that that, that I've had encounters with. Um, mm. And I and I think this, you know he was brought up in a home that valued education, that valued public affairs, that valued, um, you know, uh, um, lobbying and government, uh, you know, um, lobbying government on, on, on procedural things and regulations. And, and, um, you know, it wears off. And uh, he was an only child. So, you know, I think he probably had, um, until his, you know, parents split sort of a fair amount of attention to, uh, to, to manners and that kind of thing. What okay? If he's not guilty, uh, which is clearly his 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 point and his explanation for doing this, what does he say happened to Tim Bosma then? What's his position so, on that? Yeah, you know, and let's just be clear. I mean, he is guilty. Uh, not only was he found guilty, but you know his story doesn't hold up to to, to much careful scrutiny. Uh, but but it does play on the fact that his convictions um, were not. They were largely, you know, through circumstantial evidence. Um, you know, they, they didn't even recover uh, the body of Laura Babcock. Uh, Tim Bosma's body was only found in bits and pieces from the, in the incinerator. Um, and, uh, you know, and his father was originally deemed a suicide. So he's got a baseline with, you know, something to work with. And so his basic premise is, can be summed up as, uh, like this. <clears throat> Him and his, so, so Dal Millard and his friend Mark Smitch were uh, needing a truck because they wanted to, uh, you know, uh, they needed to tow their race car to, down to uh, south for, for, for an elaborate race. They, they found that they, the, 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 the truck they wanted. They were test driving a number of them and that they were test driving Tim Bosma's car, perhaps to steal it. Uh, but uh, but that Mark Smitch was, as he put it, 30 stories higher than a kite and, and accidentally shot Tim Bosma in the, in the truck. 
and that Dell and Millard were shocked and appalled, he said, but, you know, uh, Mark was like his little brother and that he stepped up to protect Mark and instead of calling the police or helping the police when they, you know, first approached him as a suspect, he did everything he could to hide it. And that's when he says he admits, admitted to me uh, that he did, in fact, engage in uh, destroying evidence, destroying the, uh, Tim's remains, um, trying to, you know, washing the truck, trying to hide it, putting it in his trailer, hiding it at his mother's house, to all just to protect Mark Smith. And he said that because he did that, police were then so angry with him that they needed to bring him down. And so they elicited help from the Waterloo Regional Police and the Toronto Police and very, you know, other police forces uh, uh, to, to manufacture evidence of other murders. Because if you, can, you know, if you can convince people that you're a serial killer, then that's you know, the ultimate demise of a reputation kind of thing. So that's his sort of conspiracy theory on, on why he's uh, you know, wrongfully accused. It is uh, it is a fascinating interview. I would encourage people to go read it at the National Post. Again, the headline, Interviews with a Serial Killer. Do you see me as a demon? And you can also go to the True Crime Byline podcast. You'll find that there with Adrian Humphreys. Uh, Adrian, I know uh, I know how, how much you put into this and all the time on I really appreciate taking a few minutes to share it with us. Well, I appreciate your interest in it and sharing it with your listeners. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Woodstock Festival, you're familiar with the Woodstock Festival, happened this month in 1969. Just It was just a few weeks after Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, 500, 400,000 hippies got together in Bethel, New York, and had the Woodstock Festival, peace and love and all those things. And you know the story. I don't have to fill you in on all the details of that. You're well aware, I'm sure, of all that. But do you remember the concert that came 30 years later? the 30th anniversary concert of Woodstock. It was called Woodstock 99. And it is is considered one of the all-time disasters in the music industry. So bad, so horrendous, so out of control, so memorably awful that they've decided to make a three-part documentary about it, which is showing up on Netflix tomorrow. If you stay up till midnight tonight, you might be able to start watching it right away. It was that bad. Want to bring in... A guy who, if you're ever going to talk about music history, there is nobody else in Canada or anywhere else in the world. There is nobody else you want to talk about if you're talking rock history that you want to talk about these things more than Alan Cross, the guy who is behind a journal of musical things. He joins us now. Alan, how are you today? Good. Sitting out on a patio and enjoying a piece of cheesecake. That is uh, that is very rock and roll of you. I got to tell you, that's... Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that's what they did back in the days with Jimi Hendrix and all of them. Have cheesecake on the patio before they went out there on a stage. <laughs> there is, um, before we get into this, Alan, there's no chance that you were at Woodstock 99, is there? No, 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 no. I went to Woodstock 94. Right. And it, it rained and it was muddy and it was awful. And uh, that has basically destroyed any interest I have and going to any festival from here on in. Uh, at least it wasn't hot and miserable like Woodstock 99. I remember watching it on TV. I think it was uh, Much Music that had, uh, it was a pay-per-view everybody, everywhere else, but I think Much Music had actually purchased it. So, so we were watching it, 
And uh, I remember sitting there on the Friday night watching as things descend into absolute, utter madness. Now, I've been at some weird and wild shows, but I had never seen anything quite like what was going on there. And I thought to myself, as bad as it was in 94, this is worse. This is much worse. There's actually well, some. There's actually something uh, uh, streaming on Crave right now, and I think it's called Trainwreck. And uh, I was rewatching some of it last night, and it just brought back all the all the memories of, of the awfulness of this whole thing. I mean, they look. They, we always hear people say you can never go back. You got to look forward. And that said, I mean. This should, considering what Woodstock was and that it's how revered it is, fairly or not, I, I, this should have probably worked to some degree, or it should have at least been okay to some degree, right? I mean, this is, there was nothing leading up to this that gave any indication that this was going to, as you say, devolve into mayhem. This was, this should have been an okay event, correct? For all the problems they had in 94, and there were a bunch, I mean, you're always going to have issues when you have um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the field. Uh, if that had been any indication, yeah, you know what? It should have been okay. Uh, they had a, on paper, a better venue, and um, they had learned from the mistakes of the previous two Woodstocks, so you would think that things would be better, but actually they were exponentially worse. <laughs> part, of the problem, part of the problem was the weather. It was brutally, brutally hot. And that didn't work out really well because it was on an abandoned Air Force base with acres and acres and acres and acres of runway, of concrete, which only made it even hotter. Uh, there were shortages of water. Uh, you could buy bottled water for $4 a bottle, which, you know, even today is, is a lot for a bottle of water. But in 1999, that was insane. And one of the big issues was that the lineup seemed to be um, directed entirely towards angry 24-year-old white guys who had a whole bunch of testosterone energy that needed to be blown off in some way. And, you know, when you have bands like Corn and Limp Biscuits and Kid Rock and Insane Clown Posse and groups like that, um, you're kind of asking for for things to explode, and they and they did. Yeah, and, and okay, so it's funny you bring that up because I was looking at the lineup. I didn't remember it uh, until I went and looked at it today. And, you know, there were names on the on the bill that you look and you go, you know, at a different time, they might have been on the original Woodstock lineup had they been of a certain age. Um, Cheryl Crow was there and James Brown and the Tragically Hip and Dave Matthews and Willie Nelson and the Brian Setzer Orchestra and a bunch of others. So you had these mainstream groups i guess that were going to be doing their thing but you're right then all of a sudden it seems near the end of every set as it's getting dark i don't know who planned this but they've populated the nighttime shows with the rage groups and i mean look yeah. i like heavy metal music and it's you know i love a lot of it but you're right you, you sort of you look at this and you say like who thought about this who thought that as things are getting dark and people might be getting a little loaded that we're going to put on the groups that make everybody go crazy Right. So it was heavy into this whole new metal stuff that was really, really big towards the end of the 1990s. There were three female acts on the bill, Cheryl Crow, Jewel, and Aladdis Morissette. Um, there was one female act per day. They were all during the daylight. 
and uh, all the the heavy hard stuff was uh, was programmed towards the evening when everybody is hot and tired and dirty and drunk and just hopped up on whatever uh, you know whatever <laughs> was, was whatever going and it, it, it was just a uh, it, 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 it was terrible 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 on so many different levels and um, Michael Lang who was the promoter just like he was in 1994 and in 1969 completely underestimated the behavior of the crowd um, Michael's no longer with us he, he died earlier this year but he uh, certainly um, uh, bears a lot of responsibility for what went, went wrong all right Let's go into what went wrong because this whole thing is about the disaster that happened. Um, what happened? No, oh, you still there? I'm still here. Yep. Okay. We we're just saying right. that. Okay, so we know that we know that things happened, and we know that this is a disaster um, yep. as a concert. What was it? What happened there that made this so memorably awful? It's a confluence of so many things. This this male white rage, the heat, the expensive um, the expensive water, uh, the porter potties overflowed on the first day, and to the point where people thought that they were oh well this is fun we'll just frolic in the mud. Well it wasn't mud. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so by the time we get to the the end of each day, and by the time we got to the end of the weekend when the Red Hot Chili Peppers were playing, um, they were uh, they you know fires were being set. Um, there was, uh, all kinds of issues regarding, uh, uh, sexual assault on women. Um, there were people, there was violence, uh, vandalism. If people just got, I mean, there was a whole Lord of the Flies thing. You lock these people in a really hot, whole, awful, you know, gloomy place and, and, and they just exploded. And of course, then you have people from the stage who were, uh, in, encouraging this kind of behavior. And if you watch Limp Biscuit set, who was talking about, uh, you know, Hey, it's, it's, um, you know, you ever wake up in the morning and you feel bad and you just want to break stuff and then encourages the crowd to, to go absolutely nuts. And even when one of the promoters comes on stage and says, Fred, 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 knock it down a little bit. I mean, this is creating a problem. Some people are going to die out there. He didn't listen. He just kept on going. So it's not my fault. We didn't, we didn't bring this rage here. It, it, was, it was already here. The, you know... <laughs> My first inclination as you're talking is to say, well, almost any time you put 500... Now, Woodstock, the initial one, we didn't hear these stories, although it wasn't exactly as utopian, I don't think, as anybody makes it out oh, to no, be. No, no, but... the military actually had to uh, had the helicopter and supplies. Um, it, it, was, it was a terrible situation. It's been mythologized. And, you know, that was one of the problems with Woodstock 99, is that they were trying to harken back, the, the people that were running this, were trying to harken back to the original Woodstock and to play up on the mythology of that, of that event. When in truth, it was a terrible event with, with rain and mud and, and, and you know, uh, bad crowd control and all the rest of it. And this was lost on this, this generation, you know, the, this Generation X group that came in to see this. They had no idea. You know, for example, uh, I guess it was, who was it? Was it Bush that left, led the, the F cheer that, was, uh, that got Country Joe and the Fish into such a big, uh, big problem back in 1969? Nobody knew in the audience what was going on. Uh, why Cliff John was there? He played the Star Spangled Banner on his guitar, just like Jimi Hendrix did in '69. Nobody got the the reference. You know, there, there, there was, in many ways, it was uh, baby boomers trying to teach the 
this 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 raging young crowd, um, or, or at least to harken back to you know what made them excited in '69, and it just did not work. It didn't, and and it just got people confused and upset. And uh, you know, again with the heat and and the 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 the, the, the rage that built up over the way people were being treated. You know, it, again, it was it's but by, by the Friday night or the Saturday morning, you could tell that something was going to go wrong. And I was, as I was saying a moment ago, like my first inclination is you put half a million people together in really hot conditions where it's tight and everyone's a little cranky and it's inevitable. And then I thought, but wait a second, 19 years ago at SARS stock or SARS fest or whatever you want to call it. I was there at Downsview. It was really hot and people were jammed together and it was not a nasty mean thing at all it was celebratory so was it just the music was there something else going on that made it go off like this uh, the, the music had a lot to do with it and so did the environment around it uh people were encouraging this kind of um you know aggro behavior and uh you know star stock it happened in Canada, and you know we're Canadians. We we don't do agro very very well. <laughs> and the other thing was, you know, we had uh, you know Sam Roberts playing. We had the Rolling Stones playing. We had Rush playing. We had the Tea Party playing. We had um, tragically tragically hit playing. I mean, and, and they were there. It was first of all, it was a free show, so nobody felt that they were being ripped off. And secondly, it was all about um, raising money for uh, a health crisis that had absolutely devastated parts of Toronto's economy. So we were in the sense that we were actually in this all together, trying to make sure that um, everything would be fine, you know, for everybody else. It was it was it was a much more humanitarian <laughs> type uh, situation than what we saw at Rome, New York. And even then, though, uh, that one of the legendary stories from SARS was SARS Fest was Justin Timberlake being pelted with bottles filled with urine because he didn't really fit in with the vibe of the show. And he got up there and it was, he's told the story a bunch of times that, you know, it, not everybody at these things is friendly all the time, even at the friendliest ones. Yeah. You know, that, uh, that was not our finest moment. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. <laughs> but for the most part, everything else worked out quite well. Are you, are you surprised at all that considering everything that happened. Are you surprised it's taken this long for someone to do a documentary on, on this? Cause it seems like this is just ripe for this kind of treatment. Well, I, I think Netflix is really, really looking for all kinds of compelling, um, music documentaries. They're really, really hot right now. And I think they, they saw what they did with the fire festival documentary. I think they yep, saw yep. what, um, this, this other doc that I was talking about that's, uh, that's available on crave right now, what they did with it. Uh, I'm wondering what more they can do because the Crave doc is is really quite good, very in depth, lots of uh, really good footage, uh, lots of really good interviews. So I, I'm curious to see what uh, what the Netflix doc is is going to do. Are they going to build on that? And you said it's a three part documentary. It's going to be, uh, you know, what what more of the story is there to tell? And I think that's the interest. That, that's what I'm interested. We will, uh, we will see. As I say, it, it lands tomorrow, we're told, on Netflix. And it's just, it's one of those stories from music history that, um, uh, you know, for, for a bunch of people, it may have never been known or it's been forgotten, but it will not be forgotten. It won't be forgotten now. I think a lot of people no. are going to be, uh, unlike Alan, who was very honest, a lot of people will suddenly remember being there, even though they probably weren't. But uh, probably you know, weren't. Why, why wouldn't you want to be there now? Uh, Alan Cross, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today and enjoy the cheesecake. Okay, you're welcome. 
That is uh, that is one of the great music writers, certainly the great music historian uh, anywhere. If you're if you're wanting to talk rock history, Alan Cross is the guy to talk to for sure. But yeah, it is um, it, it is one of those. This is one of those stories that just you forget, and probably because we've been asked to forget it almost because it really is. Well, if you watch this, uh, and I haven't seen all of it, I've just seen the trailer for it. Boy, it is. I, I love that Alan chose the referred to it as a Lord of the Flies moment because that's that's what it seems like. It seems like this was one of those moments where society, where civilization devolved, and you realize if you leave people to their own devices, with no rules, no laws, no security, no no nothing, this is where we get. And you can argue that, and you can say, no, no, I think that if we had a completely uh, a society that was, you know, had no police and no this and no that, I think we'd be fine. We'd all sort it out. And we'd all live happily ever. No, this, I'm sorry to be so cynical and so depressing. This is what would happen. And I don't want to get all serious because we're talking about something that, you know, not only is a few years ago now, but is also, it's, it's a, it's a music story, but boy, every, this is, this is one of the things as I've been reminded of this, that I, then you start thinking, oh Yeah. All those ideas about defunding the police, give it a second thought because when you take away, they had no real, not much anyway, security. Is this potentially where you start to go? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, it's, it's a cautionary tale perhaps for something. It's on tomorrow on Netflix if you want to watch it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.